And let's give a warm welcome to the host of The H Spot, David Hirschkopf. Welcome, everyone. Really excited today to have Mike Bergmeier with me. He's a guy I've known for a long time. He's an amazing force in the natural foods industry and a co-founder and managing director of an investment bank called Whipstitch Capital. He also is a really nice guy. You don't always see that with everyone in the industry, but super nice guy, really cares about companies he works with, cares about the environment, health, just a great guy to work with and talk to. And thank you for coming on. I appreciate it, Mike. How are you? Good, Dave. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Looking forward to the conversation today. So I don't know much about, you know, what has gone before, but like, what kind of kid were you? Were you like a super studious kid or were you a troublemaker or athlete or what were you? I was kind of the person who got along with everybody and kind of floated between groups. You know, I was an athlete I mean, I played baseball and football, but I was also, I'm not saying I was Michael Jordan and didn't make the team when I was a freshman and I had those kind of skills, but I, I thought I was decent, but you know, I had that thing where I didn't make the baseball team and yet thought I should be the number four hitter and starting third base as a freshman. And so setbacks, but I worked hard. I studied, I wasn't a valedictorian and I didn't always follow the rules, but I had fun. I grew up outside of Rochester, New York, a small town, Pittsburgh, New York, and uh, had my band called Cold Shower and uh, enjoyed, <laughs> enjoyed high school. Were you the one who named the band? I did not. I don't have that kind of creativity. <laughs> but it sounds like you're kind of a well-rounded kid with some of the skills we see today. You're obviously good with people and, and smart guy. So that sort of was showing up at an early age, it sounds like. And did you have a sort of direction coming out of you know high school or anything of what you thought you might want to do? No, not really. I went to Boston College and I thought I would be pre-med. And I honestly was hungover in my first biology lab. I remember being kind of pissed off because I had taken AP biology in high school. And between classes and labs, I had seven days a week. And here I am in college. And you know, and I got the, the, the grade needed to pass it, right? And here I am in college and I have to take biology again. And I remember the two things that I dislike most are the sight of blood and the smell of hospitals. And I said, Wait a second, why am I pre-med? <laughs> so I switched to an economics major just because it seemed like it was a general topic, general kind of uh, industry. I could go anywhere with it. Right. Like, so psychology and economics and sociology are some of the, the more popular majors. So you yeah. did that. And then I guess you went to Duke, studied public policy, right? And then onto nonprofits. Was that all the same sort of thinking of, was it sort of like you wanted to help people? Was that the thought process? I've always thought about kind of career in terms of that, you know, you're in your most awake hours when you're doing the most. Unfortunately, you're at work. So I wanted to make sure whatever I was doing with work had real impact and that, you know, it wasn't just a job. I was actually doing something good for people. So yeah, kind of with economics being general, I got a master's degree in public policy, thinking that I could, oh, I can get a job in issues. I can work on issues. How cool. And then, yeah, I worked for the, then the governor of Massachusetts for a year, watching nine months. And I spent eight of them looking for a job outside of state government because I realized I could not stand working in government. It was just the wrong kind of culture for me. Then I spent three years with a nonprofit children's and policy advocacy organization out in Oakland, California. That was the early stage. And then I was basically about to get married and I was at the top of the pay scale of the nonprofit. And the way I tell the story, and it's totally true, that after I paid off my student loans that were due that month and I had a pizza and a beer, I had no money for rent. 
So uh, it sounds like a good choice to pick the pizza and beer over rent, right? Yeah. Well, you got to have priorities. (laughs) And um, so, and I was working in healthcare issues at the children's nonprofit. So decided that if I could get into a, I didn't want to go back to graduate school again, per se, for going to school again, but I kind of realized that the nonprofit world, at least just what I was doing, wasn't going to quite work out yet. thought if I could get a business job in healthcare, that might be better. So I decided if I could get into a good business school, I, I would choose that route. But with the nonprofit, I mean, how much of it was just sort of, you know, just pays so poorly and how much was you didn't feel like you were making the difference that you thought you would make or, or something else? Yeah, good question. I mean, I, th- I thought I was making impact. I think nonprofits are actually a fantastic job for young people to do because in part the pay at nonprofits is not great. My experience was that they got a lot of really talented younger people who were given a lot of responsibility at a young age. And then you're able to kind of you know execute on that, get a lot of great experience. And I, I certainly did. I did a lot of growing up there professionally, but I, mean, I was living in San Francisco in the Bay Area then too. And you know, cost of living was high and I just could kind of see the writing on the wall that financially it was going to be a pretty tough road. Right. Was that the same problem with the government position or was government some additional problems? Government, I kind of felt like I could impact people more by influencing what government did instead of being a part of government. And it may have been an age thing too, and just my role because it was more on just the execution side. I worked for the executive office for administration and finance. It was under Governor Bill Weld. It was a Republican in Massachusetts, but I kind of say like a Republican in Massachusetts is a is a deep liberal in North Carolina. So like it's kind of where I also kind of just started the dislike the whole label thing in in the world and life. And actually, Charlie Baker was kind of my second direct boss, who's now the governor of Massachusetts. So again, a Republican governor in a deeply, deeply liberal state. But no, it was just, you know, the people, the culture, it just wasn't the right fit. It was too slow. It was too slow for me. Too many obstacles, too many restraints and so forth. Sort of the the usual things we think about government work and... Too many long water cooler conversations. I just kind of wanted to get, get shit done. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, does that sound, I mean, you work with a lot of entrepreneurs, so it sort of sounds like that's the classic entrepreneur mindset of like, you know, what's the bottom line? How do we get things done? Yeah, definitely. Uh, it just wasn't right. It wasn't right for me. So do you think that nonprofits are sort of a great starting point for young people who eventually will go into for-profit type of work? Absolutely. I learned so much and I was given so much responsibility at a really young age, to lead a lot of projects, bring things together. You know, you're just thrown more because they don't have as many resources and they, you know, they can't pay as much. So, you know, try to find younger, talented people and put them in the fire and see how they can go. Right, right. Which sounds like a board work too for nonprofits. We're just happy <laughs> to have you. But from that, what experience do you have that you think sort of sticks with you that really had an impact? It was interesting. I led a project there. It was funded by Kaiser Permanente, one of the largest you know healthcare firms out there. But they're a nonprofit organization, so they had money that they had to you know kind of donate, put to charitable uses. So I led this project that was on how to improve health outcomes for adolescents, so, you know, so teenagers. It's really one of the most vulnerable periods of life. And the project was kind of putting together a large group of 
experts across the country to come up with a set of recommendations for managed care organizations, which was kind of the big buzzword at the time for a lot of the healthcare organizations. And it gave me a lot of confidence because I didn't know anything. (laughs) I didn't know anything about healthcare. I didn't know anything about adolescent health. And here I am talking to, you know, 10 preeminent experts around the country. So you figure out what you need to say, how you get people to trust you, to listen to you, how to listen and bring things together. And it taught me a lot about healthcare too. I mean, I'm probably one of the only investment bankers out here who desperately thinks we need single payer because we don't have a healthcare system. We just have a sick care system. And there's, you know, at least in the adolescent world, for that kind of covered life in a healthcare plan, there's zero incentive to prevent any outcome because when the outcome happens, you're going to be on someone else's health insurance plan. Right. Yeah. We use Kaiser and Kaiser definitely has more of an emphasis on preventative care. Yeah. But it's because they have such a high percentage of covered lives in California. They're one of the few plans that exist that actually might financially benefit, you know, when the member is 50, if they can prevent some malady or a negative health outcome when they're 16. Right. Right. Yeah. Because they, they, they have you cradle to grave sometimes. Yeah. So then you move on from the nonprofit world and you go to Dartmouth, get your MBA, and then go to sort of Bain and company and start out in consulting. What happened during that period? What brought you down that particular path? Yeah, I was fortunate. I worked hard to try to get into a good business school and was fortunate to get into the Tuck School at Dartmouth. But the history of thinking I wanted to go into the medical profession and then I quickly get somewhere and realize that's not right. You know, so here I was going to business school thinking that I'd get on the business side of healthcare and then not be a doctor. But I started talking to alumni from Tuck, you know, the first or second week of school and got a lot of advice saying that if I didn't have MD after my name, that I should not go into healthcare as a profession, especially as your first job out of business school. You know, just the system is not the easiest to navigate. And people were saying that the success of your career would be too much based on who your first boss was. So here I was again saying, oh my God, what am I going to do? third of Tuck students at the time, at least, went into investment banking, a third went into consulting, and then a third other. Ironically, I now own an investment bank and I had zero interest in investment banking. So I thought consulting, all right, you can just work with companies, help solve problems. Really liked what I saw from Bain & Company when they came to recruit and give their pitch on who they were. I kind of put all my chips in trying to get a job there. And fortunately, it worked out somehow. That's great. And so with the MBA, I've always wanted to ask MBAs these questions because I do not have one. But like, how much of the MBA program do you think are pragmatic things you learned that you use now? And how much of it is sort of getting the piece of paper next to your name? So like, you know, what did you learn that's really that useful and pragmatic, would you say? I guess I can only speak from my experience, right? Not about all MBA programs, but I learned so much. I learned so much. I mean, I learned so much that I kind of felt like not to disparage Duke or the public policy program there, but at least for me and for what I was interested in, what I got from it, I got like 50 times more out of the MBA program than my two years at Duke. I worked really hard. I learned so much. I met so many fantastic people. I learned like just so many skills on presentations, on putting together materials and doing analysis and jumping into the fire. I was fortunate to get connected to a lot of great alumni. I'm still close with some professors. It was an amazing two years. So is it sort of one third 
connections, one third skills and one third sort of having the the degree or, or how would you sort of parcel that out? Yeah, I guess, you know, the connections come in later and certainly the openings. I mean, if you think about it, like Bain and company only recruited from 10 schools or so. So I was fortunate to be at one of those schools. So I guess the connections play in there. I mean, for me, Dartmouth was a great environment. We were, you know, two hours away from the closest city in Boston. So if you were there, you were kind of there and you were stuck there. And the professors were also stuck there. And the class was pretty small. It was only 180 people. So you get to know everybody really well. You develop some great friendships. You don't get distracted. It was a good experience. I would think that most people would assume that MBA programs at big schools would be larger than that because that's not really a lot of people, 180. No, I think by the end of the first year, I had deep study groups with six people each term. And I mean, deep, we'd spend two or three hours together each night, essentially 10% of the class I had been in study group with by the end of the first year. You tend to know everybody in that kind of small program. Did you become a pivot table wizard in Excel and a PowerPoint wizard? And those are pretty useful in what you do now, right? I somehow made my way through it. <laughs> <laughs> I still can't. I don't know how to do a pivot table today. I will admit that. I'm very good at learning things for an exam and then forgetting what they are afterwards. Yeah. But it's you know just, how to hire people that can do pivot tables. I know to get smarter people around me than I am. Yes. Right. And so we talked about how my daughter, my oldest child, is now at Duke. And yeah. we'll be working at Bain this summer. And yeah. I know going back and forth with her, like she was prepping for the Bain interview, like doing these case studies. And I was like, yeah. what are case studies? And like, why are you spending so many hours doing this? And so it seemed like this odd thing that maybe most people don't know exists. So like, what is it? Like, what are you actually doing? And why is it useful? And so forth. Yeah, the case study is interesting. Just as a, in interviews, I still give people questions like this when I interview them, and I know they haven't practiced, but the case study is basically kind of asking someone an extremely odd question, typically an odd question, and then asking them to solve it very quickly, knowing that it might be something that would take a couple of weeks or you know, you'd need independent sources and data to get. It's a great way to get inside someone's head and see how they break down a problem. And you're also asking the person to how they break this down to do it verbally. And the way I always do it for people is like, I want to see how your brain works and how you can logically break down a complex question. I mean, there's stupid questions like, you know, how many cows are there in Canada? How many ping pong balls can fit in a 747? What's the revenue of the U.S. Postal Service? You got five minutes. And don't give me a number. I want to hear everything going on in your head as you're thinking through this. So is this something that sort of you second guess yourself a lot? And you're like, huh, did I do that okay? Because I guess there's, there'd be a lot of different ways of approaching these sorts of questions, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, during one of my Bain interviews, I completely reversed course halfway through because I was going down a line of thinking and then I just hit the end and like, oh, wait a second, that's totally wrong because that'll never work. Or then, you know, you have to gut check, you get a number and then you have to figure, all right, uh, you know, what does that really mean? So you think through it. It's interesting. I mean, so even I started doing questions like that to people we would start to hire. And then I started to realize that because of email and the internet, young people today don't even know anything about mail. I had like, you know, MBA grads saying, okay, revenue of the US Postal Service, the mail, um, that gets delivered once a week. Or people saying it's like, yeah, three times a day. You know, people have no clue. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> People have no clue about that. Maybe if you said it was snail mail, then they would understand it because the snail term mail, mail. I can made it throw right. them off. So we all hear like, you know, investment bankers, private equity, all, all this kind of stuff. But, but what do you actually do? Like, what's a typical day for you? What do you do in the morning? What do you do in the afternoon? Like, what are you physically doing? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the great things is that, at least on the investment banking side, that no two days are ever, ever the same. I'm always spending a lot of time meeting new people, you know, meeting new companies and, you know, getting to know people. If we can't work with them, trying to help them. But a lot of time is just building relationships with companies and people. We're assessing a lot of companies. And then we have clients. We're thinking about what the objectives that they have. And for us, it's either, you know, investment banking for us is either raising capital for companies or selling them. And raising capital is, is raising institutional money. So money from venture capital firms or private equity firms. So we're talking on the small end, maybe $5 million up to $50 million plus, you know, of equity going into a business or selling a company, you know, trying to find a buyer whether it be a private equity firm, which kind of called a financial or a large public or private company to buy them, or it's called a strategic. Yeah, so you're building a lot of relationships with the buyers on the side too, both the financials and the strategics. When you get the client, you're thinking about the process, how you're going to go through it. You're building all the materials, thinking through strategically how you position the company and making the materials as a you know, non-confidential executive summary, describing the business and a detailed financial model and a book, like 50, 70 page PowerPoint that really is the business and describing it. And, and you're always selling because it's all about selling the business too. So you have to figure out how you do that. In your company, you're the main people-facing guy, right? I started with Stitch Capital with Nick McCoy. And so Nick and I are definitely the most outward-facing, So for sure. So yeah. you spend, you think, most of your time in meetings, either with your own team or with entrepreneurs or, or with capital sources? These days, it's a lot of Zoom. So I spend a lot of time <laughs> standing in front of my desk, staring at my screen with, you know, I say like talking to my screen. It looks a little bizarre, but... I mean, meetings with buyers, meetings with the companies, meetings with prospective clients, a lot of internal calls. Yeah, it's hard to find time to actually do the work. And so the work is sort of the analysis and modeling and document production and all that. And I assume that if you're not doing it, you just have other people in the firm do it. Yeah, we've got a fantastic team. And that's one of the things that I'm really proud of, of what we've created here. You know, there's 10 of us and the so Nick and I are the two managing directors. We have three vice presidents. They've all worked with me and Nick at Whipstitch and then at the previous investment bank where we were for six, seven, eight years each. They're all fantastic. They're experts. We've developed a great crew of analysts underneath them as well. Our team is amazing. You know, sort of work-life balance. Like, how do you balance family time and exercise and, you know, taking care of yourself and, you know, friends and work and nonprofit, if you do that? How do you fit all in? It's hard to do, but it's important to me. I mean, I think about 20 years ago, I was at that stage where, you know, you start getting older and I was gaining like two or three pounds a year. And then all of a sudden I'd look down and like, whoa, that's like 25 pounds. You know, just decided and realized that the work-life balance had gotten out of control. You know, so I did a, you know, massive exercise regimen change, eating change. And I ended up losing, I think I lost 25 pounds in three months. And wow. I, and I just felt so much better. 
And so I try to do the work-life balance. It's hard. I've gotten much better at it as I've gotten older. And I've got three kids. My oldest is in college now. And then I've got a junior in high school and then a seventh grader. I mean, you can make a pretty solid argument that I didn't do a good job with the work-life balance because I am divorced. And uh, but marriage is hard. And uh, it just, you know, for various reasons, wasn't, you know, didn't work out, which is fine. You know, I'm a great, great partner now. When the kids are here, I try to stop work. I exercise right now. I mean, during COVID, what we did is we start every day from 7 to 8 a.m. with a personal trainer on Zoom. And uh, so we start every day working out. I had a goal of riding my road bike, which is in the basement. I refuse to get on the road. I've had too many friends with bike injuries. But you know, I rode, I just completed yesterday. I hit my goal of 2,500 miles for the year. Wow. Riding the bike. And I started playing guitar again this year, which has been so much fun. And I was learning the solo to Stairway to Heaven the other day in the intro, trying to get that down. And uh, you're a big Foo Fighters fan, right? So Love the Foo Fighters, yes. So, so you're trying to learn a couple of their songs too? Yeah, Everlong and Monkey Wrench. Those were the first two songs when I got started again this summer. Are, are they particularly hard? Is it Iron, uh, Iron Man, the song that everyone learns at first on a guitar? Yeah. Um, uh, uh, yeah, no, um, <laughs> yeah, luckily I'm past that, but yeah, I, I find it fun. I, I try to start like every Saturday or Sunday and, you know, throw on YouTube and just pick a song to learn. So, but with, with sort of the exercise and the music and all that, I mean, do you like have a written planner and do you like schedule things? So like exercises like this piece from seven to eight that just can't be interfered with and you would never schedule anything then. I live and die by my calendar and just things that are written down. Like if I don't write it down, I don't do it. I somehow don't remember it either. Maybe there's just too much going on. The 7 to 8 a.m. is precious. That never gets changed. If I could find even like a midday hour, I will throw a do not call. Don't schedule me and try to make that exercise time. And so with what you do in a day or in a week or during the course of the year, which parts of it do you really look forward to and which parts could you maybe do without? Well, I guess I've learned this year is I could really do without a lot of the business <laughs> travel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is. It is freaking great. Not getting a 4 a.m. alarm and having to jump on a 6 a.m. flight. That has been the beauty of the year. My favorite time of the year, I live outside of Portland, Maine, and each summer, we have a big party that we call the Stitching Crew Day. Like, And it started because we named our advisors for the firm, the Stitching Crew. So we invite all of the Stitching Crew and their spouses, our team and their partners or spouses. And we have a meeting, we have a fun event in the afternoon, then we have a huge party, kind of make it a day and a half event. And I, I miss that. I just, I really miss seeing people. And that's, I think what I like most about the job is you know, I love going to trade shows and seeing everybody and we host a lot of networking events and I love the people aspect. Because I mean, if you want to be pre-med and you know, then you're nonprofit, it sounds like sort of the core is like you like to help people and it sounds like you like to interact with people. When we get a deal done, I like knowing that we helped someone, you know, and then like, I remember for me, a big one was when we sold Blake's All Natural Foods to ConAgra. 
because Chris Licata, who was running the business, you know, had become a friend, you know, over the years. We probably had known Chris maybe 10 years before we started working with him. And his in-laws owned the majority of the business and they were deep in retirement age. And Chris felt a profound responsibility to take care of his in-laws. And then, so then we as a team, you know, we all felt like this. It was me, Nick and Greg working on this the most, but we felt a profound responsibility to help Chris and make sure that Chris could take care of his family. You know, so selling, like, sure, it was great for us and it, there's a fee associated with it, but it really felt like we helped Chris's in-laws have a retirement and, you know, succeed. And we were able to make Chris, you know, complete his journey on what he was trying to accomplish for his in-laws. So those are the greatest rewards for me. Right. But coming out of COVID now, you learned you didn't like the travel, but you do like the people. So like, is there a lesson going forward for you? Like. Is there some way to modify once COVID's over? Yeah, I think just less travel in just general. Yeah, but I got a lot of personal travel I want to do. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. The bucket yeah. list kind of stuff. Yes, that's been growing. Yeah, got to get to the Maldives before they're underwater. So when you think about like, you know, you did consulting, you're now investment banking, you, you deal with private equity all the time. And, um, you know, when people think about the financial professions, you know, some more Wall Street, some are outside of Wall Street. What's really the difference? Like, are they the same people that go into them? And is the work really that different? And sort of like, you know, for listeners who don't really know the difference, what's a quick sort of rundown? Well, I mean, for me, so I actually, after consulting, I worked in venture capital before I got into investment banking. And I worked at a very, very small fund. It was a a $10 million fund. And I guess, keeping with my nonprofit background, it was a for-profit subsidiary of a nonprofit organization. But that's when I ended up leading for deals in the natural product sector and kind of got into the whole food, beverage, personal care world. But it was interesting to me because our fund also did technology deals and things like that. And I quickly realized that I had no interest in the technology space and that those weren't my people. It's interesting you asked about the financial jobs and private equity versus banking, but since my experience is all with consumer-focused investors and consumer-focused bankers, but I mean, I don't deal a lot with bankers except our bankers, our team. So for me, it's Whipstitch, and a lot of uh, you know a lot of private equity, venture capital investors. A lot have come out of banking. I think there's just great people in this industry overall that kind of look to help people. And, you know, obviously we're focused on, you know, what we call better for you consumer, but it's natural, organic, healthy, functional products, things that can, you know, hopefully help you live a better, healthier life. And I've just kind of seen that on the investor side that you typically find people who are, have gravitated to this because they also believe it and live it too. So I'm living in my own bubble. And subset of the world, happy, healthy, natural foods bubble. Yeah, that's not reality. Yes, I kind of say like last. I went to Disney World with the kids once, and then I remember I got off the plane in Vegas, and the two things I could say were like, if I'm in Disney World or if I'm in Vegas, I'm realizing that I am nowhere near the average American. Right, right. I could see that. I could see that. What are the most typical mistakes that you see sellers make? Where do they go wrong or short themselves on value? Well, I think a lot of people who are building companies and then want to sell a company may not understand what actually drives value. They might be looking at other precedent transactions and thinking that they get known as the comparables or the comps. 
the comps are the deals that have been wildly successful for the most part. And for every successful company and growth story, there are 100 or 200 that were not, yet people believe that the comps are applicable to every company. Yeah. And, you know, and that's, that's just not the case. So it does and, get us very excited, though, in the industry. Like has, you know, for weeks, we'll talk about, wow, that guy got a billion dollars. How, how did he do that? Yeah. You know, we kind of when we started Whipstitch, too, we said, like, we don't want to be, you know, used car salesmen. We're not just going to throw out numbers and make people feel like the company is worth, you know, this immense amount of money because that's where the comps are. That's where the market is. We've always tried to be as brutally honest as we can and also recognizing we're not doing the hard work. The entrepreneurs are doing the hard work here, you know, taking the risk, building the companies. We're just privileged when we're allowed and, and able to work with them. We think of you as a banker, but, you know, you're an entrepreneur also. I mean, so you've, you've you know, worried about payroll and done a lot of the same stuff as people in my shoes and some of your clients. Yeah. So it's sort of yeah. interesting. I mean, Nick and I started Whipstitch a little over five years ago now. And, you know, we thought it'd be an easier transition. It turned out to be pretty abrupt. And we basically had from the point where we discussed, you know, doing this with our former employer to starting Whipstitch, I think we had about 48 hours. We left a previous investment bank and, you know, we're forced to start Web stitch and you know we, we did that and it's all been great but yeah there were just two of us and we paid ourselves nothing you know i think for the first i mean at least salary we had no salary i think up until this year but we, we literally paid ourselves nothing for a long time at first and there was it was just the two of us so we stay up till 2 a.m 3 a.m 4 a.m getting all the work done. We had no one else to help us. So yes, that's when we did all the materials, did all the modeling, right. did all the phone calls, all the emails. We'd find out that a server in Belarus had labeled that Whipstage Capital is originating spam. So none of our emails globally were going around, but we only found out a week after that had happened. And we're like thinking, how come no one's responding to us anymore? Isn't like, oh, business no. fun? It's but, so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> and you make your first hires, then you you can't pay what you would like to pay and you have no track record necessarily. So why are people going to take the risk and join you? Unrealistic sellers, huh? I mean, but you guys have done great. I mean, no one would know about the backstory or, or not paying yourself or anything like that. I mean, if people in our industry had to say, you know, name two or three firms that are like just killing it, I mean, you would be there. So what are the factors that made you succeed where Maybe some other investment banks haven't, you know, been able to. We've worked hard. There's no doubt about it. I mean, but a lot of people have worked hard. I think Nick and I have, it's a great partnership. And I've, I've been listening a lot to another podcast, How I Built This, by Guy Raz. I think it's a fantastic podcast. It's a great way of kind of entrepreneurs to tell their story. And it's been interesting because I've been lately been listening to a lot of stories where companies have partners, you know, co-founders. And then you have the stories where it's just one person who started a company. And I think, it, I think that's much more difficult. I think I was extremely lucky and fortunate to have met Nick in my life. And for honestly, Nick to be so incredibly different than me. And, you know, he is got about 25 years of banking experience now, very transactional oriented kind of data, you know, self-professed data nerd will get in the weeds, you know, a stickler on the legal documents and negotiating and, and, you know, has that kind of temperament, has that kind of interest. 
And I am much more high level, strategic, maybe more people oriented. I from the training at Bain and Company, I'm much more about the presentations and like the marketing of Whipstitch and how we get out there and our reputation and how are people going to be perceiving us and talking to the buyers and talking to the entrepreneurs, you know, early on and you know, doing presentations at conferences and things like that. Our skill sets and interests are so radically different that it absolutely is that one plus one equals three, or, you know, in our case, it's like five or something. It was great to have met Nick, but I mean, I met Nick in a lot of ways too, because when I met him, I was working for the venture capital firm and for one of our portfolio companies, we had to raise some capital. Previously, I'd always been the person to lead all of the capital raising for our portfolio companies. But in this case, another investor had come in and so was ahead of us on the cap table. So I didn't really feel like it was my responsibility being underneath to raise the money and neither did that investor. So we decided to hire an investment bank ourselves to help us raise capital. So this board member and I interviewed 13 investment bankers in the industry. And what I kind of realized at the time, and that's honestly probably what ended up being able to get me into investment banking and why I thought it would be good is, I mean, I realized that investment bankers in this space, certainly at that time, there there are good ones now, had no idea what they were talking about. They didn't know who the right buyers were. They didn't know how much money a company should really be able to raise who the right investors were, what was good with the company, what was bad with the company, because I knew exactly what was good with our portfolio companies and what was sinky. And bankers were only there, and, and they were universally, besides Nick, were solely trying to speak in a way that they thought that it was what you wanted to hear, You know how right. great your business was and how this is going to work out and blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, wow, the BS from this community is insane. And Nick was the only one who was saying things like, no, I don't think you should raise a lot of money. Like you, performance needs to improve. You should just raise as little money as you need to to get by over the next 12 months. It was also during a recession. You know, the, the market's not good right, right now. Yeah. You know, so I had a lot of respect for Nick early on. And yeah, um, so I ended, up, I ended up hiring Nick you know, as a banker. (laughs) And he's a a great guy. I can testify. So I I don't know if you can pull something out, but you know, if there's younger or or newer business people listening to this, is there sort of a piece of advice that from your experience, you would give them something not to do or something to do to just sort of be successful either in the investment banking world or in the food industry? I honestly think it's probably investment banking, food, any anything that people want to do. You really have to just do what is interesting to you. And you have to follow your gut with that. Like when I was at Tuck, like I said, I never thought I would be an investment banker. I did not want to be an investment banker. If you could like give me a list of 10 professions and I had to rank them from one to 10 about what you want to be, what you don't want to be, investment banker would be 10. Wow. Uh, I, I probably would have even put it on the list and venture capitalists would have been high on that list too. And here I am after business school, I become both a VC and now owning an investment bank. But for me, I didn't even like to describe myself as an investment banker. When I started doing this, I would say I raise capital and sell natural organic food and beverage companies. Wow. And, and I refuse to say investment banking. No, I'm fine with it. But um, <laughs> well, You just never know, I guess. Huh? So if you had a mulligan, and you could do one thing over in life, what would you do over? 
I should have never stopped playing the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you could have been in the Foo Fighters. Oh, I know. I can't sing. So that's, I, yeah, I'd be a bass player, right? The bass players never sing. I don't really live from the perspective of saying that I wish I had done something differently. I think you learn from everything you do. I've made mistakes in life. I've done things, you know, I can look back and regret, but it all helps create who you are and, you know, who you have around you in your life. So I, I don't really have any regrets. I don't think I would do anything differently. It's been interesting path to get here. I love where I am right now. I would like to be a better guitar player though. So yes, I wish I had not stopped playing guitar. The good thing is you know what to do. It's just practice, right? <laughs> People that are listening, do you want them to go check out Whipstitch Capital on your website or? Sure. We put a lot of information on our website. That's one of the things we've tried to, to do. That's probably pretty different than a lot of... I always hear that our website looks nothing like any other investment bank's website. You know, we've got a whole section that's just on education and kind of all, we call it our take by articles we've written, presentations that we've done, links to video presentations that we've done. You know, we're always trying to think of, you know, we've learned a lot in this industry. So we like to pass on that knowledge as much as we can. We can't work with everyone and it may not be the right stage for us to work with a company if they're kind of growing and emerging. But if we can be helpful, we'd love to be helpful. Yeah. So yeah, there is a lot of information on the website. There's nothing going on. (laughs) (laughs) Just more Zoom, a lot of Zoom. Your vitamin D, stay safe and check out our take, practice your musical instruments at home. Well, Mike, thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time out and being with us. And I hope that you are safe. And I look forward to seeing you when trade shows begin again. Maybe you can play a guitar solo uh, at one of those for us. That would be fun. I could do that. Maybe I'll come up with a whip stitch uh, jingle. <laughs> that, that would be fun. That's a good idea. A little passion project. Yeah. Uh, all right. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Dave. All right. Thanks. All right. Bye. Give it up for Dave Hirschkopf, everybody. You've been listening to The H-Spot on the Funnel Radio channel. Never miss an episode. Be sure to subscribe at the hspotpodcast.com.